0: And welcome to another edition of the podcast that dares to mock the rich and powerful, mostly because they've been dead for hundreds of years.
1: Yep. If you want hard-hitting satire, this is the place. So look out, William Gladstone. We don't care who we ever pop (laughs) at.
0: So this week on We Are History, it's one of those... I I love these, John. I get excited. Because it's one of those famous events where you think, yeah, I know that. Why are they doing that? And then you dig into it and you realise that it's more than just the bare headlines. So, John, you've chosen the Great Fire of London in 1666, because we know men... Just love a good fire, don't they, John? <laughs> do the cooking, no chance. But on a fire, on a barbecue, suddenly all the men gather round, deep in discussion about the right sort of kindling. That's, that's you love not fair. it.
1: I don't actually have a barbecue. Angela. my American co-writers think it's the weirdest thing that I do not cook meat outdoors. It's like saying I didn't own a television or a computer or a swimming pool.
0: And I explained
1: <laughs> to them that I actually have an inflatable paddling pool from B and Q that we got for the dog. That's Aww. lovely, John. But you really don't have a barbecue. No, I don't. It's like, no, it's annoying a barbecue. It's so much work just to cook a bit of chicken outside. Are you even a man? <laughs> Probably not.
0: So, so let's set the scene then. Uh, it's Great Fire of London, John. So we're going to go back a bit for context. That's what I like to do. So. When did the ice sheets retreat from this prehistoric landmass and when were the British Isles formed? Is that what I'm mean,
1: going then? way back, Angela, to 1660. I'm going back a whole six years. Six years, wow. Yeah. So the monarchy is restored. It's the uh, uh, crowning of Charles II becomes king, replacing uh, the Commonwealth, the Interregnum. I mean, it seems a great jubilation, of course. Um, lots of people going, Cromwell, no, never supported him. Me, I was always a royalist, I was. Yeah, this, this roundhead helmet a trophy i kept it from one of the many round heads i killed yeah it, do- it wasn't one yeah, yeah it does fit me rather well doesn't it that <laughs> is a coincidence
0: oh if uh, only there was john if only there's a podcast episode about all this indeed that you could listen to just set the scene
1: what was it when britain was a republic i think we called it yes, check that did. one out indeed so the overthrow of puritan england in 1660 um sort of sparked a new sense of liberation in london and for decades later young people would have to put up old boys going Wow, man, you should have been here in the 60s. Um, Music flourished, theatres reopened, and bawdy comedies, a particular favourite. And scientific advancements since Shakespeare's time meant that for the first time, the jokes are actually funny. Yes. (laughs) So I don't know if you've actually ever seen the restoration comedies, but some of them are quite good. Yes. Uh, Whereas the jokes in Shakespeare's comedies, not so good, not funny. I'm not laughing. I I'm not that. saying that, John. you right. said that. Well, I don't mind saying it. I'm going out on a limb. <laughs> so architecture flourished. Christopher Wren was full of exciting ideas for magnificent new buildings. And they were all like, oh, sorry, Mr Wren, but nothing really needs building in London at the moment. We'll keep you on file just in case anything comes up.
0: And of course, Isaac Newton had just invented gravity, which meant that everyone stopped floating around in the air and could actually walk normally on the streets again. And of course, Robert Boyle developed Boyle's Law, which was... Um, Something to do with pressure and gas, I think, wasn't it? Very Well, it was very more. important. Anyway. Yeah, very, very more important. More. <laughs> yeah. And Charles II gave his blessing to all these developments with his patronage of the Royal Society, which is a sort of science and clever people yeah. club, right? Yeah, yeah. And that was founded in 1662. So science and, and knowledge art is and, and art uh, is all very exciting yeah. time.
1: Yeah, and England's status in Europe had risen during the interregnum.
0: Yeah, and trades continuing to flourish. There had been a couple of brief wars with Holland and Spain, and that meant that England now has the colony of Jamaica, and the conflicts have sort of seen England emerge as a formidable naval power.
1: Yeah, new colonies founded America with William Penn founding um, Pennsylvania, that's it, and Charles's <laughs> brother, the Duke of York, capturing New Amsterdam from the Dutch, which in his honour was renamed New York. And he new York, led- New York. New York, New York. He declared that it was a wonderful town and that the Bronx was up, whereas the battery was in fact down.
0: Yeah, slightly different Duke of York to the one we have now.
1: Um, yes, yes.
0: There's a pub in central London called the Duke of York and its pub sign is still a painting of Prince Andrew and they won't take it down. I've
1: been to this pub. Yeah, it's in uh, Fitzrovia. And they're like, oh, we're not giving given into political correctness. It's just a sign. And not, it's not just the pub sign. There's a huge picture of Andrew on the side of the pub. Wow. I think the punters should ditch the pub and go to Pizza Express instead. Maybe. Oh, God, no. <laughs> um, yeah. So the population of London at this point was around 400,000, making it by far the largest conurbation in the country. It had about 7.5% of the population of England living in London. Living conditions obviously very cramped inside the city walls. Lanes and alleys were very narrow Upper floors jutted out so far that opposite sides of the lanes were almost touching. On one high
0: five, the people. Yes, yeah, right. it'd be
1: weird, wouldn't it, when you open your bedroom window and sort of could always shake hands with the person who lived opposite you.
0: It'd be easy if you were having an affair with the person opposite. That'd quite kind of that would be
1: crazy. Maybe, yeah, maybe yeah. that happened. yeah. Maybe that happened. Houses were really small and dirty, and people got water from wells, which was also a handy place to pick up a variety of horrible diseases.
0: Yeah, and this upbeat atmosphere of optimism following the restoration didn't last for that long, did it? No. 1665, the Great Plague comes along, kills around 100,000 people. Many of the bitter Puritans who weren't in power anymore were like, ha, told you, this was God's judgment upon a sinful land. We knew this would happen. Yeah. And it was really the last major plague outbreak in Britain. You could go back and listen to our episode on the Black Death, if you need a good laugh. Yes. An uh, episode we released with impeccable timing, I believe, in February 2020. Saying there's never been anything like this. Never really like <laughs> There's it. never been a global, never, global pandemic will. since Whoops. then.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, so the rich, of course, escaped from the capital. Charles and his court decamped to Salisbury. And then when the plague struck there, they all moved to Oxford. Uh, Some repeats moved to Clapham. Miles outside Ooh. London, lovely Clapham, uh, where John lives. Uh, the <laughs> poor, meanwhile, were forcibly kept in their homes where carts would come around to pick up the bodies and then dump them in plague pits. Lovely. Uh, yeah. And then it's all like, does one tip the man with the corpse cart? It's one of those embarrassing social dilemmas,
0: isn't it? <laughs> yeah. This always reminds me of um, there's a is it Holy Grail or Life of Brian with the play? It's Holy, Holy Grail. Grail, isn't it? Yeah. And because when I was about eight years old and my first pet died, my little bunny rabbit Flopsy. Yeah. And um, and my dad just thought it was really funny. And we had this, and he just got a bell. My mum had this little hand bell and he just came up go, bring out your dead as we were like taking <laughs> poor, the rabbits we buried in the child. garden. I was really
1: distressed. Um, so the <laughs> plague uh, died away with the coming of winter and the flea population declined and the worst was over. And the plague had thrived in London's narrow and hygienic streets. And questions began to be asked about the terrible
0: cramped living conditions within the city. Yeah, we really need to do something about London's cramped living conditions. We need a radical solution to all these wooden, thatched houses all being so close together and on top of each other. If only there was some way of just starting again. Uh, so,
1: you see where we're going with this, listeners. <laughs> uh, nothing had prepared Londoners for the radical solution that presented itself on the night of September the 2nd, 1666. In Pudding Lane, in the home of Thomas Fariner, a baker's wife woke up her husband in the middle of the night and said... Darling, you did put out that fire in the kitchen, didn't you? Mm And he's like, no, that's just one of those over-the-top health and safety fixations. I mean, really, for God's sake, what is the worst thing that could happen?
0: And lo and behold, before long, flames are spreading through the house. And the couple themselves, they escaped over the rooftops. But they left behind their maid, who was too frightened to climb over the rooftops. And so she was the first casualty of the Great Fire of London. Isn't that yeah, sad? Yeah, it's sad. At this point, there's nothing that remarkable about this fire, is there? You've got wooden thatched houses were often catching fire. But this had been a very dry summer, and now there's a steady wind and the fire starts to spread up the street. So it's sort of this conflation of things to make it worse than it could have been.
1: Yes. So the Star Inn burnt down, which is a terrible shame. I hate to see pups go. Um, (laughs) With the inferno spreading to the surrounding buildings, the mayor of London was woken up at 3 a.m. So somebody obviously thought it was getting quite serious. And he took one look at it and famously uttered, A woman might
0: piss it out. Amazing. Uh, Charby. Not an image you really want to dwell on that, is it? Do we have a fire brigade ready? No, but Brenda's here and she's drunk a lot of water. <laughs> <laughs> so
1: whether this was actually attempted is not recorded. Um, but by morning, the situation was becoming serious. It was a uh, Sunday morning. Um, and The fire might have been contained to a few streets had it not been for the indecision and incompetence uh, of, of the local his local government. He's like, Lord Mayor, the fire is spreading fast. You know, if we destroy a few more buildings in its path, we'll create a gap and save many, many more. Absolutely. As soon as this proposal has been submitted to the Mm -hmm. Housing Safety Subcommittee, which meets on a bi-monthly cycle, though it may be too late to get anything on the agenda for the 28th.
0: Yeah, so the mayor basically refused to pull down any buildings without the owner's consent. And so... Unsurprisingly, householders were, weren't keen to have their homes blown up, um, and they hoped that somehow the fire might miraculously just stop or change direction. But these densely packed wooden houses had thatched roofs. They couldn't have been more inflammable. Really. That's a word that upsets me. Uh, inflammable and flammable mean the same thing. What's the opposite of inflammable, John? Tell uh, me. Un- uninflammable. Non-flammable.
1: I don't know. Anyway, you get to the, you get to the big issues here, don't you? I this do. Is the great
0: injustice, of the Great Fire of London. I studied linguistics. It annoys me. Um, um, anyway, soon the fire uh, was destroying a hundred houses an hour. Wow, that's pretty amazing. So down by the waterfront, there
1: were warehouses packed with tar, pitch, wood. If anything was highly combustible, you can be sure it was being stored in the buildings in the path of the fire.
0: Oh no, it's heading for the kindling factory <laughs> and the, oh, no, the, the, the petrol f- stores and the 1970s city. What's next,
1: to the 1970s settees? <laughs> Oh, it's the firelighter factory. <laughs> the
0: most flammable things in the universe. Oh, never mind.
1: The candle factory should be okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it wasn't just one building set fire to the next. Big glowing cinders were being caught in the wind and landing on the dry thatch a few oh. houses along. So it was as if lots of fires were being started deliberately. Uh, and that's what the paranoid conspiracy theorists losing their home all suddenly believed. Somebody must be doing this. It must be the work of our enemies.
0: Right so yeah because we like reasons for things that yeah, we yeah, human yeah. beings other yeah. than just no it's just Disaster. bad luck <laughs> yeah yeah quite um so the fire started to spread along London bridge which of course back then was full of houses and it was very fortunate that there was a gap in the houses which had been caused by a fire that had happened a few years beforehand obviously one not in the conditions to make everything else catch yeah. fire and if that hadn't already been burnt down that house and there'd been a gap the fire could have just spread all the way to Southwark. But as it turned out, the fire said, I'm not going south of the river at this time of night. And South London was safe. Come on, South London. Oh, yes.
1: <laughs> the diarist Samuel Pepys did what you should always do when there's a fire starting. <laughs> um, well, famously, he buried a big cheese in his garden. Uh, you must remember the fire safety adverts when we were kids. If you smell smoke in your house, do not panic, but quickly wake the other members of your household and take a big Parmesan cheese from the kitchen and bury it in the garden.
0: What would you bury, John? Would it be your piece of the Berlin Wall?
1: Oh, that's very valuable. That is <laughs> priceless. My piece of the Barney more trouble <laughs> is you bury a stone in the garden, you're going to dig it up and go, which one was it? Which one is
0: it? This one? Yeah. Is it that one?
1: <laughs> I uh,
0: think I'd bury. Um, if it happened now, I've got a mint twirl in the fridge, and they're limited edition. Oh
1: no, definitely good call. So I
0: think I'll bury that in case they don't make them again.
1: My friend that I write my shows with, he uh, they, he lives in LA, and they did have the massive fire uh, come down from the hills oh, and yeah, spread around yeah, their house, course. and they were told to evacuate their house, and he grabbed all his guitars and put them all in the car, and just went back at the last minute and took his wedding photo and his wife went, What you took the wedding photo last? You wow. took your you took your guitars before our memory of our marriage. Yeah,
0: it would def- it would definitely be photos for me, because they're the things you just can't recreate. Yeah. Yeah it would definitely be my photos. Oh, I don't care about that. <laughs> 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 i got them on my phone. Fool.
1: So anyway, Samuel Pepys recording his famous diaries, how he went out and he saw King Charles II and his brother, the Duke of York, directing emergency action. And do you know what? They weren't burying any cheeses, the king and his brother. No sense of correct Fools. procedure for doing a fire emergency. <laughs> yeah, so um, in the afternoon, the king and the Duke of York went on the royal barge to look at the city burning from the safety of the river. Mm. Nice to get a good view of all the poor people being made homeless Um, and they decided they took the executive decision to remove the useless mayor from being in charge and they took personal command themselves you can do that when you're king Yeah. Um, soldiers were deployed around the city houses were pulled down to create fire breaks uh, because no one's going to sue the king are they but there was, of course, no fire brigades or fire hydrants back in those days,
0: yeah, firefighting was pretty pathetic by our standards back then. Um, they had these sort of big brass syringes that could right. squirts and I don't know if you've got your houses on fire, somebody got I'll bring the squirt it doesn't, doesn't fill you with confidence <laughs> it doesn't, does it? Does it? <laughs> uh, it squirted less water than your nephew's super soaker um, so people would throw buckets of water, but obviously it's been a long, hot summer. people yeah. don't have running water in their houses, the wells are dry. There just wasn't a lot of water to hand and nor was there a means to get up high to throw the water on to the roof. So frankly, it's amazing this hadn't happened before.
1: Yeah. And soon people were abandoning their homes and heading for open countryside in quiet rural villages like Islington and Hackney. <laughs> they hired porters or people with cars to take their belongings to safety. And do you know what happened, Angela? What happened, John? Surge pricing. Really? Yeah, just like Uber. The price of getting out of town suddenly got a lot more expensive wow. during this busy period. So there's some records from the time. A Cornishman called Tremaine wrote Porters, coaches, carts, and carters became at such an excessive rate that they could not be hired to carry a lading, I don't know what there's, a loading of goods, half a mile. And the uncouchable villains wrought on the people, necessity would do nothing. Many heaps of rich cloth, indeed all sorts of wealth, lay trodden as dung in the streets.
0: So, disaster capitalism was ever thus. Eh? Exactly. Yeah. Wow. So, by the Monday afternoon, the city was destroyed from Cheapside to the Thames, the whole right. south side of the city bit of London, north of the river, if that makes I, sense to yeah, anyone who's not from yeah. London. And the homes of some of England's wealthiest men were on fire. And the royal exchange was next in line as the wind steadily fanned the flames and the fire started to move across the whole city.
1: Yeah, and the chaos in the city and the mass exodus of people from their homes and the guardians of the great public buildings meant there was a great opportunity for looting. People came in from outside the city walls and under the claims of being there to help ransack the empty buildings and carried as much as they could take home. A few weeks after the fire, there was a royal proclamation ordering everyone who had taken plate goods and building material from houses demolished by the fire to return them to their owners by bringing them to the armoury in Finsbury Fields, where they would be kept and inventoried and returned to their rightful owners. Yeah. (laughs) Good luck with that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Tuesday, the 4th of September, that was really the peak of the destruction. It must have been pretty overwhelming to see everything you knew just going up in smoke, where you lived, where you worked, all your possessions, where you got your food. Your whole life just laid waste, really. And it wasn't like you could go and stay with your next door neighbour because they were gone as well. Exactly
1: right. So the cathedral was Tuesday's major last casualty, that's St Paul's. It wasn't actually completely destroyed. For a while afterwards, they thought about rebuilding the burnt bits. Uh, But then a couple of years later, another part fell down. And uh, that's not what you want when you've gone in for a quiet moment of contemplation. So... Mm. uh, lots of Londoners during the fire thought St Paul's might be a refuge with its stone walls but all the publishers and booksellers said well let's place all our books inside there because that'll be safe because the uh, <laughs> it <won't>, a safe <laughs> <place>. <laughs> that's a safe place to put all the va- all let's these bits with- of paper okay. um, so that and the wooden scaffolding that they had outside for the restoration that was going on at the time meant that it was soon burning inside and out and some I the- this
0: part of it as well serves them right because if they'd used that as a refuge for people rather than books maybe that wouldn't have <laughs>
1: maybe, right, yeah
0: <laughs> Um, so it should be said that it was a slow and steady progression of the fire. It wasn't like the whole city was suddenly on fire in a night. Yeah, It took four days for the fire to burn across town. And it's something I think we find hard yeah. to comprehend, apart from maybe from the Californian wildfires, when you look to yeah. at how hard it is to control. Yeah. And that's with the equipment they've got now, you know, once the fire's out of control. Um, but it's partly because it was so slow that the death toll was actually... Pretty low compared to great fires in other cities around the same time. So in Tokyo in 1657 or Edo, Edo, Edo it as called, it was called back that was then. Yeah. 85,000 people died in that. And in Istanbul in 1660, 40,000 yeah. people died. Yeah.
1: So- the Istanbul fire started in a store that sold straw products right beside Firewood Gate. I mean, that's just asking for it, isn't <laughs> it? <you know? laughs> um, so anyway, by Wednesday night, the fire was effectively over. It had destroyed 13,200 wow. houses, over 80 churches, 44 companies halls and most of the old St Paul's. There was probably 100,000 people made homeless and people put up makeshift sheds in the fields and woods around the outside of London and many of them were still living there 10 years later.
0: Wow. And so many churches were destroyed that dissenting meeting houses were requisitioned. So it's right. So divine intervention led to our religion losing its church, but yours being spared. So what I'm taking for that is that we should get your (laughs) church because it's obvious that that's why God burned (laughs) ours down. That seems fair, doesn't it? It's like yeah,
1: Yeah, you can justify anything with religion, can't you? Absolutely. Yeah.
0: And then ten temporary tabernacles were constructed. These are John's notes. You can tell he's done this just to... Ten temporary tabernacles. Ten temporary tabernacles. tabernacles. (laughs) That definitely sounds like a tongue twister. Uh, They were constructed and many churches combined. So you have 51 new churches built, usually with money raised by appeals and charitable donations. And John, I can only imagine really... Like how much were those churches prioritised over feeding poor people? It's insane, isn't it? And the homeless, yeah, as that I said, lost their houses. Everyone's
1: still living in sheds in woods up in Highgate really and in uh, grim, Islington. It? Yeah, um, obviously, all the insurance claims took a while to process. That should be coming through any day now. <laughs> that claim. In fact, there were compensations set up, uh, but money tended to be paid out to respectable people who had fallen on hard times. So the wealthier claimants, rather than the poor who'd lost everything, of course, was ever thus. Mm. Uh, and the merchants of the upper classes who'd lost goods in the fire were thought to be adding all sorts of possessions to the list to bump up their claims. <laughs> what is it we always say? Of
0: course, that could never happen today, John. <laughs> People would never falsify their insurance claims today. <laughs> so such a catastrophe demanded a more meaningful scapegoat, really, than just a common house fire. Yes. How could something so simple cause so much damage uh, Fanned by a strong wind and a dry summer? So the conspiracy theories of the day quickly spread that the fire had been deliberately started by Jesuits, by the Dutch, by Spaniards, and in fact, a Frenchman was virtually dismembered by a London mob. While the King's Guard took it upon themselves to start attacking anyone really who spoke poor English, because there'd been all these European wars, and so yeah. everyone was suspect yes. if they weren't English. Yes,
1: they're from outside of town. Yeah. So, uh, but eventually, a French watchmaker, uh, Robert Hubert confessed to starting the fire, though it became pretty clear during his trial that his story was completely nonsense. Uh, He didn't even disembark at London until two days after the fire, but it was just too inconvenient to let the truth get in the way of having someone to blame. The King's chief minister commented, neither the judges nor any present at the trial did believe him guilty, but that he was a poor, distracted wretch, weary of his life and chose to part with it. And he was publicly hanged at Tyburn in front of a huge crowd. And even though he's a Protestant, he obligingly confessed to being a Catholic. And an official plaque was later put on the monument to the fire, blaming the Popish faction for the Inferno, where it remained until 1831. Jesus,
0: soon to be replaced with a plaque blaming Muslim extremists <laughs> yeah, or whoever right. the next scapegoat said, yeah. It's really shocking that that full phenomenon of false confessions is quite interesting. It I, is mean, quite how, common. I read a bit more about this guy and I don't know how much it came from him or whether he was pressured into it or that some sources i think say he was of quite low intelligence and might have Sometime, been coerced yeah. a bit but people do it don't yeah. they? We did but that we did that podcast confessed. on
1: the uh, roadhouse murders mm. and that was a huge scandal and somebody came forward and said it was me and mm. you know it wasn't him and yeah, uh, uh sometimes not. it's attention seekers the people are just sort of suicidal or have yeah. mental health just problems. want to be
0: in the history books for something I yeah suppose. yeah so um The monument to the fire is, quite handily, John, right next to Monument Tube. Oh, I suppose so. Yeah, yeah. I I thought that's a good place to put it. There's a tube station with that name.
1: Might Mm. as well, absolutely. Um,
0: (laughs) And and interestingly, the plaque initially did say that the fire was caused by the wrath of God. Um, But then a few years later, it became more politically useful to blame the Catholics for the fire. (laughs) Just being a bit more precise. And uh, so history was rewritten... To better suit the agenda of the day, really? Yeah.
1: So, in the aftermath of the fire, there were various architects putting forward radical, ambitious plans for the rebuilding. Of London. My favourite was Captain Valentine Knight, whose plan included... a great name, by the way. Captain
0: Captain Valentine Knight. Knight. It's Captain got a Knight. bit of flash heart about it, isn't it? Sorry. Captain Knight, Valentine Knight.
1: <laughs> 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 His plan included a canal through the city to carry goods, which he said would give the Crown a perpetual income of over 200 grand a year. Do you know what King Charles' reaction to that was? Go on. He had him arrested and put in prison. It's like, how dare you suggest that I would benefit from the aftermath of this terrible disaster that's happened to London. Everyone had lost everything, and so no one wanted to be seen as if they were on the map. If only
0: our current government had those sort of scruples, am I right? Am I right? My name's Angela Barnes. Right. (laughs)
1: Thank you, good night. (laughs) Yeah, the Lord Mayor, Sir William Bolton, attracted controversy. This was the new one to replace the crappy one who hadn't pulled down the buildings. Mm. The new Lord Mayor, Sir William Bolton, Attracted controversy by refusing to waive his right to the traditional money paid to the incoming mayor for the beautifying of his house.
0: See, it's Boris Johnson's wallpaper all well, over again. It
1: could never happen today. No. The merchant tailors wanted to excuse the traditional gift because of the financial pressure everyone was under following the fire. But Bolton wasn't having it.
0: it Imagine being that guy. I don't care if the city's burnt down and yeah. people are starving under my watch. I want my gift.
1: I want my normal gift that you normally get. I've been looking forward to this. Yeah. When the word spread, though, actually, when how grabby he was being, he was disgraced. Good. He was accused of embezzling money later in his term. And Samuel Pepys wrote of the baseness of Lord Bolton, cheating the poor of the city.
0: And he never held public office ever again. Good. Current government, taking note. <laughs> um... <laughs> There were some visionaries who thought that this was the opportunity to make London one of the great architectural beauties of the world, really. Uh, Christopher Wren famously produced these exciting drawings for a whole new London, a majestic and confident city with classical squares and imposing boulevards with a grandeur and scale that can match anything in Europe. And
1: then everyone, oh, no, no, you can't do that. No, sorry, Ooh. no, no. See, uh, my basement is underneath where you've got that. So um, that right. was the thing. And so just, yeah, his his ambition was stymied by vested interests, really. Everyone wanted to cling on to the patch of land that they had beforehand. Mm. Uh, and so the City of London today remains a modern conurbation built on a medieval street plan. Um there was a special court set up to rule on which plot of land was owned by whom because it was so complex with tenants and sublets and who had the right to live where. But henceforth, Angela, no building was allowed within 40 feet of the river or the river fleet and compensation was paid for owners of land there. Then a new tax on coal was introduced to raise money uh, for all of that. So I suppose that bore its own incentive not to put too much coal on the fire before you went to bed.
0: Yeah, I guess so. And so but many beautiful buildings were commissioned, however, including Wren's famous St Paul's Cathedral, um, which was not declared finished until seventeen eleven. Yeah, I must build this for you. you're waiting for a skip, isn't it? Eh? <laughs> But this time, the city was rebuilt mainly in stone and not the combination of wood, thatch and fire lighters (laughs) that had been approved by safety officers last time, which is, you know, encouraging that they did learn something. Yes. Um, The ban on wood and thatch in London remains in place and the only exemption was when they built the new Globe Theatre on the South Bank. Uh, That was the first thatched roof in central London for over 300 years.
1: Yeah, it might seem really obvious this, but it didn't always happen. So much of Chicago was burnt down in 1870 and then quickly and cheaply rebuilt without any planning or oversight using the same wood and density as before and then four years later the whole city burned down What's again. What's
0: the definition of madness? <laughs> Doing yeah. the same thing
1: over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: So fire prevention methods were put in place as the new city was built. There were fire wardens who patrolled the streets. There were ladders. There were buckets placed in strategic corners. Um, not just for, you know, party goers to be sick in. Um, and every householder was expected to have a bucket and be ready if a fire broke out. Yes. And bakers and cooks were under strict instructions never to leave a fire to burn itself out. And henceforth, they had to put water on it and make sure all fires were extinguished before they went to bed. And I'm telling you, John, that is the beginning of health and safety gone, mad. It's
1: ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, as I said, as as the baker said, what's the worst that could happen? Exactly.
0: Um, And in the following years, um, although there were serious fires in London, in other parts of the city, in Southwark, for example, there was never again a massive fire to that extent that there was in central London. London until December 1940. Ah, uh,
1: yes. That was it when London endured what was called the Blitz, Angela, which is a thing. Up, it's yeah. an old war called the Second World War. No one ever talks about that. It's another bit of forgotten history. Yeah, we might look at it one day. <laughs> um, so the Great Fire of London saw surprisingly few recorded deaths. The official death toll was only eight, uh, sometimes wow. six, depending on which history book you read. Does uh, that
0: include poor Robert, Hubert?
1: Uh, I don't think it includes the guy who was hung for doing it. No, I think it's people who are uh, presumably consumed in the, flame, yeah. uh, in the flames, including the maid from uh, Pudding Lane. My guess personal gut feeling is that the figures are probably wrong. Many of the anonymous poor might have been cremated in their homes. But shocking to think that more people died in the Grenfell Fire of 2017 than the Great Fire of London in 1666. Still the poor who live in the most dangerous housing and who have to struggle to get compensation or justice after the event.
0: Yeah, things haven't moved on that far, have they? And because, of course, it was so dramatic and it happened in England's capital city, it lives large in our national consciousness, although there's other disasters that are completely... Forgotten 60 years earlier, there was a tsunami in the Bristol Channel and that resulted in the deaths of over 2,000 people. Or there was a great hurricane in 1703 and that's thought to have killed over 8,000 people. Yep,
1: yeah, there are no nursery rhymes about that, but then very hard to find a rhyme for tsunami.
0: Tsunami. 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 Have, <laughs> that's it. Should have called the tsunami the Newcastle about, fans. Yeah. <laughs> it's,
1: like, I'm not, it's hard to fit in the tsunami into yeah. that one story, yeah.
0: Um, but that's not to say the fire wasn't a big deal, obviously. 5 six of the area within the city walls was destroyed. It was a calamity without equal, really, and central London was reduced to a pile of smouldering ashes. Yeah. So, and, um, and of course, the baker from Pudding Lane said, all right, all right, have to go on about it. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, so the thing, Angela, I've got to say, the thing I find most interesting about it, and that's why I picked it, is that in political terms, it became this really important propaganda weapon for both sides. So the royalists were saying the fire was an accident, but Charles and his brother showed great leadership and were decisive and bold and were there on the front line. And it pains me to admit it, Angela, that is actually the truth. (laughs) I knew you were a royalist. I (laughs) knew it. (laughs) Whereas the opponents of the royal family, who are suspicious of Charles and the Catholic tendencies of the Stuarts, the people with that agenda were saying, this was an act of sabotage. It was the Catholics. It was the enemies of freedom. It was the people who want to drag us back to dictatorship. And look what they've done. They've burnt down the entire city. And the Mm. thing about their version is that it is a much more appealing narrative than the boring old accident theory. Mm -hmm. And the more exciting story is always going to get a lot more traction than the boring old truth.
0: Yeah, still the case, isn't it? It's like, oh yeah, Diana was murdered by the royal family. That makes a much better story than just her chauffeur was pissed and was driving too fast. Exactly. So, yeah.
1: so in the following two decades, as the crisis grew about the Duke of York and the future James II and the knowledge of his Catholicism became public as he married a Catholic queen and had a male heir, with everything that that would entail for English independence and freedoms, the fire was part of the evidence for why this could not be allowed to happen. And winning this propaganda and a war was how Parliament would eventually become supreme over the monarchy.
0: So what you're saying, John, is you would have said, "Fuck the truth." You would have gone with the papist Plot theory. For well, the look, sometimes
1: outcomes. you know political necessity requires that a narrative <laughs> is spun, but they actually succeeded in changing people's minds about what had happened. The fire in 1666, everyone knew it was an accident, mm. uh, even though this they sort of watched this guy get hung for it. Uh, but 20 years later, people really believed that it was a popish plot, and. Catholics were banned from 20 miles from the center of London. Uh, so you couldn't live in London if you were a Catholic. And the fire was given as the reason even if 20 years earlier they had all known they all that this was not accepted that wasn't the yeah, case. Yeah. Wow. So
0: it's interesting isn't it
1: how that it how is. history
0: can be rewritten if it's useful. It is. And there you go. You thought you knew Great Fire of London. But did you, really?
1: Yeah, we did, really. (laughs) 6066.
0: So that's it for this week. Thanks for listening to We Are History. And please do remember, if you haven't already, that you can subscribe to the podcast. There are links in the show notes. And also, you can now join our Patreon Members Club. Uh, You can get your episodes a week early and without adverts. Um, Plus exclusive content and access to us so you can suggest topics and discuss episodes you'll be able to join us on our live zooms and lots of bits and bobs and for a little bit more you can also get your paws on some great we are history merch fantastic what is the merch angela there's some mugs john and some things great I didn't know you knew so much about it <laughs> well I'll tell you what if you want to find out more head over to patreon.com slash we are history
1: fantastic
0: and thanks to everyone here at Podmasters for looking after us and please do give us a follow on twitter at we are history pod and also John on instagram do you know what that is dear instagram it's on the world wide web net. it's on the world wide <laughs> web it's like a photo album John Um, at we are history pod on there and we'll see you all next time I've got a Rush off now because i left my vest drying on the paraffin heater at home <laughs> <laughs> oh i can smell smoke oh god well if london's still standing we'll see you next time see you next time
1: bye bye we are history is written and presented by angela barnes and john o'farrell with audio production by me simon williams the lead producer is Anne-Marie Luff, and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. With artwork by James Parrott, We Are History is a Podmasters production.